For those of you visiting, uh, we have begun a series of expositions on the letter to the Hebrews. We are working our way through. We have just finished what is called the exordium, the first four verses. We will put the cap on that today, and we will introduce some ideas that we need to consider as we continue through this exposition, and we will introduce the next portion of uh, chapter 1, the epistle to the Hebrews. So we will be reading this morning, beginning in verse 4, and we will read to the end of the chapter in verse 14. So please stand with me one more time. Let's give our attention to the infallible word of God. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. Let's hear the word of God. Speaking of the Son, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he, At any time, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten Thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God. Are you hearing that? Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please uh, remain standing if you are able for our prayer together. If you have any condition that makes it difficult for you to remain standing, please, please feel free to be seated. Let's unite our hearts, brethren. 
O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. We gather here in that name. We gather under the glorious eye of that God to offer up true, heartfelt, spirit-wrought, biblically informed prayers. We come to ask thee to bless thy people. Father, is it not through all the scripture? May we not stand on the firm foundation of thy word? Bless thy people. Bless thine inheritance. Feed them also and lift them up forever. Do it, O God. Thy people need thee. Thy people need thee. We love thee. We need a fresh touch from thee. And I pray, O righteous Father, that thou wouldst be pleased to hear our prayers this morning. O Lord Jesus, thou art the head of this church. Thou didst pour out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Wilt thou not pour out the Spirit upon thy dear people here today? And Father, not here, not only here, but everywhere that thy blood-bought people are meeting. Father, may children, men, women lift up their voices in joyful praise, even solemn praise. Father, some places there may be moaning and groaning saints of God, pouring out their hearts to thee, but hear our prayers and help us to worship. Father, some here may be fainting under the load of providence that thou hast sent their way. Strengthen their knees. Lift up their hands that hang down. Help them to rest in thee. Help them truly to say, for when I am weak, then am I strong. It is all in thy glorious grace that is sufficient. And now, O oh God, how I pray that thou wouldst rejuvenize and that thou wouldst truly refresh thy people. Father, thou knowest what each one of us needs. I do ask, Lord, knowing that we know in part that thou wouldst have mercy and advance our understanding of thee today. May we learn more about thee so that we might love thee with greater love, that we might serve thee with greater joy. Father, I do pray that our hearts are tuned to thee this morning. Deliver us from distraction. Deliver, deliver us from our flesh that would love to fill our mind, clutter our minds, even with good things that take us away from thy word. Father, please, may we hear thy word this morning. Thy, thy little lambs, thy sheep are here, O great shepherd. Feed them with 
the manna of thy word. Feed them with thee, O God, and help us to prepare, prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper following. Now help me to speak to thy people. Help it to be clear. Help it, O God, to be empowered by thy spirit. And may thy word satisfy the longing hearts of thy people here today. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. An underlying question lies quietly in the words that have been read. This letter is about Jesus Christ's surpassing excellence. And the question is, is it worth following Jesus Christ, the God-man, when it will cost me? Is it worth the cost to follow Jesus Christ? Not only in good times, that's easy. What about difficult times? Is it worth following Jesus Christ if it costs you your friends? And that happens to those who truly love Christ, who are not just trying to be in the click of the cool. Are you willing to walk away from your friends if they will not walk alongside you carrying your cross and following Christ, is it worth it? Is it worth it to lose some of your family over Christ? Maybe your entire family. It happens. Especially we see in, in countries that do not worship the one true and living God, it is not unusual when someone becomes a Christian to utterly abandon, abandon them. In fact, some even hold funerals for the person who has left to follow Christ. Is that worth it? Is your family more important than Jesus Christ? You must answer those questions if you believe the things that Christ says. Is it worth it 
to lose your job to follow Jesus Christ? Some of us here never have. But I know those that have. And it's a very difficult thing for them to do it. Especially when it's a husband with children, a wife. It's interesting to read biographies of people who do leave everything for Christ. But there's a huge difference between reading biographies that stimulate your mind and possessing a heart that will not follow Christ, whatever the cost. Is it worth it to lose your life over Jesus Christ? The first Christians certainly thought so as they were being burned alive. They sang often in the flames. In fact, the early martyrs were happy to give their lives as testimony to the one who gave his life for them. Is it worth it to follow Jesus Christ, whatever the cost? A dear pastor friend of mine had been part of the mishmash of American religion. And when the Lord began to stir in his heart and he began to follow the Lord Jesus Christ with everything in him, she left him. Pastor's wife. Is it worth it to lose your bosom's love for Jesus Christ? Those questions underlie this entire letter. <clears throat> Persecution loomed on the horizon, and many were leaving. The faith. So, we all need to sit, sit down and have a reality check on occasion and ask ourselves hard questions with nobody else around but the Lord. Open his book. Go to Luke 9, 23. If any man will follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You have to ask yourself, do I really believe that when it's not costing me much? Will I believe that when everything is set before me as loss? <clears throat> These are important, important questions to wrestle over. Now, that leads us to ask then, if this is what's underlying the book, how's it, how does it answer my questions? How does it answer my questions? Why should I walk away from this world and everything that I have for someone I've never seen, just read about in a book? Why should I do that? 
How can anybody enjoy life if they do that? Well, this book answers it in the simplest terms. Who Jesus is and what Jesus has done to save sinners. Who Jesus is. Remember, he's the one that says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What's your treasure? What is your treasure? Oh, I hope that all of us could say joyfully, the Lord Jesus, I want him above all things and above all people. You say, well, that's for the super saints. Actually, it's just for Christians. Any Christian, anywhere, anytime. We don't all pay the same cost for walking with Jesus. But sooner or later, we will pay the cost for following Jesus with all of our hearts. It's going to come up. And you will have to make hard decisions. I would say to you, the answer in making those hard decisions, the key to it is, do you know this Christ? And do you understand what he's done to save your soul? Nothing in this world is worth that. Nothing and no one. Jesus, the God-man, the Son by whom God the Father speaks in these last days, now sits enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high. Oh, my brothers and sisters, with the eyes of faith and the words of Scripture, look up to the Father's right hand. Look by faith. And know that him that loved you before the foundation of the world is reigning in splendor and in glory. In eternal splendor, our prophet, priest, and king reigns over the universe in his father's throne room. It's one of the things we need to realize when it says our Lord sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the throne room. That's the center of all existence and of all power and of all reign. Jesus sits in his father's throne reigning in glory. He's the one you want to know. He's not simply the one you want to know about. He's the one you want to know. And to know savingly. The throne room is beyond our ability to comprehend. The Lord didn't send us a group of pictures. He doesn't send us photos on our iPhones or your cell phone. Say, here it is. It's glorious. What we can eke out of the scriptures isn't about the surroundings as much as it is around the throne room. Read the book of Revelation. Where do you find Christ over and over? If he's not out riding the horse to conquer, he's in his father's throne. 
Do we believe that? Do I believe that? Do you believe that? If we believe that, it's going to make a difference when we face difficult times. It's going to make a huge difference. Jesus said to the Laodiceans, I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. There is no greater place and no higher authority in the universe than sitting at the Father's right hand. There is no greater place. There's no higher for Christ to go. And there is no brighter glory. There is no lovelier vision. There is no greater power And there is no superior person in the universe than the Son. If you know Christ, you know the one who is life, the one who gives life, the one who governs all things in your life. There is no higher. Oh, my brothers and sisters, gaze by faith and scripture upon the king in his beauty. The king in his beauty and love him as he first loved you. He should be first love, not second, not third, not fourth. In fact, I would say, don't put Jesus in a list. I would say look at Jesus as the hub of a wheel where everything in your life radiates from him. When you put him in a list, I find he tends to fall out pretty quickly. And I start thinking this has got to be done. I've got to have that done. I've got to have this finished. I've got to... Oh, sorry, Lord, no time for prayer. Uh, No time for reading your word, meditating on on you. No time for, I can barely make time together with your people. Can't fellowship, can't hospitality them. I know you've commanded all those things, but you know, the list is pretty big and it's pretty important. I would tell you it's worth nothing without Christ. Christ. Everything should be coming like the spokes of a wheel out of him. And when it cuts him off at any point, we need to do some trimming. If we don't know him and love him like that, how are we going to cast ourselves entirely upon him when the clampdown comes? What if digital passports come? What if this country adopts some of the systems that are now frequenting other countries 
and says to us, you've got kind of a low social score here. We see that you're voting for conservatives. No medicine for you this week. What are you going to do? Hand-wringing will not fix anything. How are you going to face difficulties? What if they say, no food this week? No medication. Hey, diabetic, no insulin for you. The kind of people you hang around with are dangerous. Right? My brothers and sisters, look upon the king. He is set before us in the scriptures. Go to Matthew and see how Matthew understood Jesus. And go to Mark. And then read Luke and read the things that they have in common and read the things that they have differently and learn about Jesus. How can you say you love someone that you don't know? How can I say, if I been with Myra for 49 years and have only said six or seven sentences to her. How would I know her? No. It's one of the things, by the way, uh, that utterly destroys marriages is that they stop communicating. And when they do, they're fighting about something. This is sad. Christ loves his wife and he talks to her (laughs) every day. Are we listening? Are we the bride paying attention? Oh, he's worth. He's worth hearing. His lovely words feed the longing soul. They satisfy the longing soul. Real prayer brings a peace That nothing else does. The sun. Sees you. The sun. Hears you. The sun. Loves you. The Son speaks to you. He intercedes for you. He governs you. And he awaits that moment when he will come for you to reign with him for eternity. Is Jesus worth it? If you don't know these things, it might make the answer harder for you. We've considered the son in his humiliation. As the eternal son of God, he became a true man, a true human being in the womb of the Virgin Mary. In that miraculous incarnation, Jesus, the God-man, accomplished 
the mission of purging his people from their sins. He arose from the dead. He ascended into glory. And he sat down on the right hand of the majesty in the regions of splendor. That's where he is. That's where he's reigning. And yet at the same time, he sits on the throne in the heart of believers. What a great Lord. What a wonderful one to submit to. Well, having considered the first three verses of this letter in some detail, we now continue the subject of the superior excellence of Christ to the angels. The title of the message is Better Than Angels, the Enthroned Messiah. That's really the whole heart of the message. He's better than the angels. Because he is the enthroned Messiah. So may our gracious heavenly father lavish his love upon us. Lavish his love in Christ. He's a good father. He loves us. May we know his blessings. May we know his gifts today. May we know his grace and mercy. By the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. And the illuminating words of scripture. These are words of life. This is not just ink on a page. These are words of life written by the Spirit of God and enlightened in our souls by the Spirit of God. May we know His love in the power of the Spirit, in the illuminating words of Scripture. But as we take this up, We need to take something of an extended footnote here. And that's the first thought on our list. We want to consider five things that will help us better understand Hebrews. Because we are now having left the introduction or the exordium. We're moving into the rest of the letter. And we're going to find one chapter after another things that were pointed to from those first few verses. But we want to remember these things, and I know you won't hear them once and remember them all at once, but let me encourage you to think about these five things. Having considered the first three verses, we now move, in fact, in some detail, we now move to verse 4, which is a hinge verse between the first three verses and the rest of the letter. It's a portal It's an introduction, a connector. Verse 4 begins by pointing us to biblical arguments for Christ's superiority to the angels. That's what he's taking us to. This is what the author of the letter, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's taking us by the hand and said, Now I've said these glorious things about Christ, these seven assertions, the seven descriptions And I've set before you in those things both his deity and his humanity. He is the God-man that doesn't use that uh, that language. That language doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. But like the word Trinity, God-man says it. This is what Jesus is. 
now and forever. So we have a hinge upon which that introduction and the arguments that, uh, that the author sets out uh, begins to stack up. <clears throat> With this in mind, we want to consider the, uh, comparisons and contrasts. Comparisons and contrasts that the holy author uses to help us see that Christ is better than the Old Testament prophets, better than the angels, better than Moses, better than the priesthood, and he betters all the way to the end of the book. <clears throat> At least we begin to see it, even though he uses the, the words better and greater more in the, in the, 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 the largest part of the, the, the book. When we get to the end, we have a reason for saying, yes, it's worth it to follow Jesus Christ. I want him. I want to know him. I want to walk with him. I want to hear from him. I want him to carry me through the fires and through the waters. I trust my immortal soul to him because of who he is and because of what he's done. So, you will see this, I trust. This is one of those things that, God willing, if, if he helps you put those, these five things in there, you'll start seeing them just pop up. They're there. We often don't think in these terms, but I pray that you will see this. <clears throat> now, I will use the word compare to mean Pointing out similarities. That's the way I'm going to be using it. <clears throat> I will use compare to mean pointing out similarities. That means things that are alike. When you explain something to someone and you say, well, it's, it's like this. That's, that's what we're saying. It's like this. <clears throat> Secondly, I'm using the word contrast to mean pointing out differences. Things that are different. Things that are not alike. We will find that the priests and Christ as a priest had some similarities. But they were radically different. And that's the kind of thing. Comparing and contrasting. The author does this beautifully beautifully it's so subtle it's so subtle that sometimes you can miss that he's actually using these kinds of rhetorical devices to help us see the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ I, I want that so if we study this inspired, infallible letter carefully, we will notice the rich, fascinating, and helpful ways in which the Holy Spirit structured the letter. <clears throat> so then the Spirit of God uses the following to help us see Christ's surpassing excellence. First, exposition and exhortation. Exposition. And exhortation. Exposition is the systematic interpretation and explanation of a biblical passage. I'll say that again. 
<clears throat> when we hear definitions and things like that, um, I know sometimes I immediately go blank. But exposition is the systematic, systematic interpretation or explanation of a Bible passage. <clears throat> That's what we're doing with Hebrews. We started in verse 1. We've worked our way through these three verses in detail. I have interpreted. I have explained. But biblical exposition emphasizes application. Application. To exhort biblically. To exhort means to urge strongly. To appeal to. I'm I'm appealing to you to consider this deeply. <clears throat> that kind of thing. It means to encourage. I would encourage you to think this. I would encourage you to memorize that verse. I would strongly urge you to find out what's being said here. All right. So <clears throat> exposition and exhortation... <laughs> Show up all through the letter. The author of Hebrews uses Old Testament scripture throughout the letter. He interprets it and explains it. And then he expects you to reply. He wants you to apply what he's saying. He's talking to people facing persecution. And they need to know and they need to understand who Christ is. Don't flee from Christ, whatever the cost. This is why I've wondered, I've wondered many times in, in, in my years of walking with the Lord, why the warnings were so strong in Hebrews. I mean, there are just warnings here that make you tremble if you believe them. Can people start this walk, this, this race with Jesus and not make it to the end? The letter to the Hebrews says yes. There are people who make a profession of faith in Christ and they go so far and they even look good. And then they fall away because it costs something. That's precisely what we see in Jesus' parable of the four soils. Jesus taught this. This is not something unique to the, the writer to the Hebrews. Now, I want to be clear. No regenerate person can be lost. <clears throat> but there's something about religion that people can be attracted to and not be truly converted. Now, I know that troubles some of us. It certainly troubles me. With my background and my, my ability at self-deception, I don't, I don't want to fool myself. That's why this book is clear in what it's doing. Christ is so glorious. He is so great. You don't want to leave him. My wife and I have been known to pray, Lord, where we are wrong, where we don't understand you, where we're missing what you're saying to us, undeceive us, please. I'm not saying I live in paranoia. My wife doesn't. I don't. 
But the scriptures tell us, examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. Why in the world is that in there from the apostle of grace? We're going to be looking at some of these warnings. And they, they make you tremble. But it's not about, are you perfect? Oh, you're not perfect. You're not going to make it. There's never a warning like that. There's never a warning like that. No, this is important. And this is important for many of the new converts that we have. You need to know how to cling to Christ at all times. Through all things. Because it will cost you sooner or later to follow Christ. And it does. <clears throat> so. The author of Hebrews, as I said, uses these Old Testament scriptures and he used them. He uses them brilliantly. He uses them in, in an extraordinary refined way he knows what he's doing he knows how to argue he knows how to interpret old testament scriptures and point to christ with them he didn't have a nice new leather-bound new testament he didn't have that but he could take the beautiful words of the old testament and the prophets that are pointing to christ and say uh, this is christ right here this is Christ right there. Now, <clears throat> he then interprets and explains them. Then he regularly stops his exposition to exhort his readers to application. After interpreting and explaining throughout chapter 1, he begins chapter 2. Uh, by exhorting and applying what he has interpreted and explained. He says, <clears throat> therefore, that therefore immediately grabs hold of what he's just said and then introduces what he's going to say. Therefore, it's an important word. Based on what I've just said, we ought to give the more earnest heed the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Well, what has he done in chapter 1? He's shown you that Jesus Christ is God and man, and that he's accomplished purging our sins, and he's in glory seated at the Father's right hand. That's our hope. For any day of our life. Jesus Christ. So. He says. For if the word. Spoken by angels. Was steadfast. Oh he makes a quick turn. And he goes to Mount Sinai. He's talking about. When the law was given. And he says. <clears throat> If the word was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense for reward, how much easier it is in the new covenant. It's not what he says. That's a lot of what's being preached today. What does he say? 
What does the word of God say? How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Pay attention to what you're hearing, he says. Pay attention to this great salvation, who Christ is, what he's done to save his people from their sins. Think about that. Think about the fact that the law, when it was given, it didn't give anybody an inch. There was no wiggle room. He says, something bigger and greater has come. The gospel. How will you escape? If you don't know this Christ and cleave to him in faith. That's the way almost all of the warnings go. He holds forth Christ's beauty. His altogether loveliness. His desirability. The king. The king. The king seated at the father's right hand for us. And then he says, now, I'm going to have to warn you. Pay attention. Don't let these words slip. So the author uses exposition and exhortation to clarify who Christ is. What he has done and why we should persevere by faith in Christ in perilous times. Secondly, he uses Old Covenant and New Covenant. There's comparison and contrast with Old Covenant and New Covenant. One of the fundamental and essential comparisons and contrasts in this letter is between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. For instance, the Holy Spirit begins the letter by telling us first about God speaking by the prophets in times past, and then he contrasts this with the surpassing excellence of speaking by Christ in these last days. And in chapter 4 through 10, chapters 4 through 10, the Holy Spirit makes numerous contrasts between the Levitical priests and Christ's priesthood. They were like this, but Christ's priesthood is like that. They're both priests. They both function. But Christ's priesthood is by eternity, better. For instance, in chapter 7, verses 23 through 27, and they truly were many priests. Why? Because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, meaning Christ, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, Oh, this is one of the sweetest verses in the entire Bible. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. You see, that's your hope. Don't let those words slip. That's the warning. Don't let those words slip. Your hope always and ever is Jesus Christ the successful Savior? Amen. He will not lose one of those who cling to Him because He clings to them. Well, 
It goes on to say, he, we have such an high priest uh, that this, we, for the, how about reading in English? For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests. Comparison, contrast. They're both priests. Oh, but the differences are incredible. As those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he he did, Jesus, once when he offered up himself. His sacrifice is supreme. Supreme. Always and ever because he is the high priest, doesn't die anymore. He was the priest and the sacrifice. The father accepted his sacrifice for the sins of his people. And he ever lives to make intercession for them. Those who trust in Christ are forever saved. And they can't be anything but saved. It's because you have a better high priest. It's because of who he is and what he's done. This is so simple at one level. And then we have to make certain definitions. We have to try to understand what's being said before us and how. But there it is. That's why those comparisons and those contrasts are, contrasts are so important. Look at them and realize how great Jesus Christ is. How glorious Jesus Christ is. He's better. He's better than the angels. He's better than the Old Testament priests. <clears throat> Same thing, chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. It says, for if that first covenant, first covenant, had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. <clears throat> for finding fault with them, he saith, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The promise of a new covenant. It's better. And, they, and he goes on to explain by comparison and contrast. He says, the new covenant is absolutely better. Don't go back to the old covenant. It's worth it walking with Christ. The author uses then contrast, comparison and contrast between the old and new covenants to clarify who Christ is, what he has done, and why we should persevere in faith in Christ in perilous times. Thirdly, heaven and earth. Now, this is really an interesting phenomena in the book. The writer takes us up to heaven, brings us back to earth. He tells us what's going on on earth and draws us up to heaven. It's remarkable and it's beautiful. Mm -mm. Especially in the beginning of this letter, the author takes us to heaven where Christ reigns in splendor. And when he takes us to earth, where Christ, and then he takes us to earth where Christ suffered and bled and died. We see him in glory. We see him in suffering. And we love him for both. 
We see it plainly in verse 3 of chapter 1. When he had by himself purged our sins. Well, where, where did that happen? Right here in this world. This speaks of Christ on earth. The next phrase is sat down on the right hand. The glorious right hand of the majesty on high. This speaks plainly of heaven. He's constantly taking our mind back and forth. Why? He wants us to see the beauty of Christ. He wants us to see that in the gore and in the blood and in the horror of the cross of Calvary, something beyond our imagination happened on the other side. God raised him up. God drew him up, ascended. He ascended up into glory. And he sat down on the Father's right hand where he intercedes for us continually. He's never on vacation. He's never on vacation. We might take a vacation. I've had vacations where I needed him. How about you? By the way, don't ever take a vacation from him, even if you take a vacation. That's not wise. Love him. Love him. All of this is calculated to say, look. Look how glorious he is. Don't walk away. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. In chapter 12, verses 18 and 19, the author compares and contrasts earthly Mount Sinai with heavenly Mount Zion. Yes, there is a heavenly Mount Zion, a heavenly Jerusalem, a heavenly temple. Spiritual. And he says, For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. Where are we? We're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Right here in this world. That's where he takes us. Come over here. And he'll tell, you know, and he's going to make references to this. Back there at Sinai. How did it happen? Read Exodus. And I mean, the, the mountain shook. The ground shook. The, the, the sight was so frightening. It was so stunning that the people turned to Moses and said, you talk to him. It wasn't like, oh, is this cool or what? It was like, oh, we are scared. We are petrified. Go talk to him. He says, now, you aren't coming to that. That's what the earthly Israel was exposed to. Right? He says, but you've come to Mount Zion. He compares and contrasts the mountains on heaven in heaven and on earth. In this mountain, thunder and lightning. But in this mountain, Christ reigns in glory and beauty. Glory and beauty. So, it says, you come to Mount Zion and under the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
and to an innumerable company of angels. They're a part of what we see there. You're also coming to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. As I've said before, that'd be a great name for, the, for a congregation. Assembly of the firstborn. The gathering of the firstborn. We are Christ's. He is the firstborn of the dead. And we are like him and in him. Like him in the sense that in that final day, it tells us in 1 John 3, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Is that what you want? Is your heart yearning for that day? What do you want? What's got your heart today? I hope you can say, I don't have room for anything but Christ. He's filled it all up. Look, I, I, I might stuff some things in there, but uh, Christ, Christ is there. That's what I want. Brethren, these are important questions. If things get difficult, where will you flee? These people were fleeing back to the old covenant, at least some of them. He says, no, that's not where you want to go. You want to come to a different mountain. You want to come to Mount Zion. The author uses comparison and contrast between heaven and earth. We hear it in these last words of, of that passage. You've come to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. This is rich. The author then uses these things so that we can, he can clarify who Christ is and what he's done and why we should persevere by faith in Christ in perilous times. Fourthly, Christ's humiliation and exaltation. Christ's humiliation and exaltation. Not only do we see comparison and contrast of heaven and earth in verse 3, we also see Christ's humiliation and exaltation in the same words. In other words, one of them telling us where it's happening. The other one's telling us what happened. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. When did Jesus become better than the angels? And that's one of those questions that has to pop up. Wait a minute, you told us at the beginning of all of this that he was the eternal son of God. If he was the eternal son of God, if he's the second person of the Holy Trinity, how can it be that he became better than the angels? Wasn't he better than the angels already? The answer is simple. It just happens to be miraculous. It's the incarnation. The eternal son of God was always better than the angels. He made them. He created them. He sustains them. But the eternal son of God is the son who became son. He united with humanity. He united with humanity 
And then he lived a life, a glorious, extraordinary life as a human being. And he accomplished the Father's purpose. And he was received up into glory. That's when he was made better than the angels. That's when he was or he became better. Now, if you're reading the word sinful anywhere in there, it's not even implying that. The eternal son of God, we're told in Hebrews, and you see it in the book of the Gospels. You will see them in the Gospels that he learned obedience. You say, that's a mystery. It sure is. But that's who saved us. He learned obedience by obeying everything his father told him, which led him to the cross of Calvary. And then he was declared better than the angels. Now, this is all explained in chapter 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. What an extraordinary contrast. Suffering death crowned with glory and honor. And, and this is, it was in that being a little lower than the angels that in fulfilling everything that the father said, he was better than the angels. The angels could fall. Jesus couldn't and didn't. There was never any sin in him ever whatsoever. There are many things about his manhood that make us struggle, but they're there. And the author of Hebrews understands it. Mm. Well, fifthly and last of these things, let's remember what they are, or at least it's on your outline, exposition and exhortation. There comes the explanation of the text and then pressing, urging toward um, obedience, applying the text and learning how to walk in it. It's there for us to see if we read it carefully. Old covenant and new covenant constantly set against each other, compared and contrasted. They were both covenants, but one's better than the other, even though they both came from God. Heaven and earth, and then Christ's humiliation and exaltation. We call his life in this world his humiliation, even though they could say, John could write in his gospel, when we saw him, we were seeing the glory of God. We realize now that we were seeing the glory of God. And last is Christ's deity in humanity. We've seen that Christ's deity is plainly set before us, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, God, the Son, second person of the Trinity. And yet the words, when he had by himself purged our sin, speak just as plainly and directly that the Son is truly human. Truly human, truly God. 
The God-man alone is the most unique person in the universe. The God-man alone is our Savior. The God-man alone left the praise of the millions of heavenly citizens for the devilish hatred, the putrid spitting, the merciless beating, and the bloody scourging and crucifixion to which he gave himself to save our souls. The God-man alone is our Lord. He is Lord as the Father is Lord and the Spirit is the Lord. They are God. They are the one true living God. These comparisons in contrast all work together to show that Christ and his new covenant are better than the old. They all work together to show the glory, to show the beauty and the altogether desirability of Jesus Christ as our mediator, our prophet, our priest, our king. That's the way he's being set before us. Along the way, we see the most beautiful Christology unfolded together with the Trinitarian doctrine of God. You say, these are all hard doctrines. Yes! That's what makes Hebrews tower above some portions of Scripture. All Scripture is inspired of God. It's all glorious. It's all wonderful. But we don't always find something in the tent pegs on the tabernacle like we do with the glory of Christ as God. Not mocking the Scriptures. I'm just saying all of them have their place in taking us to Christ. All of them. Even those pegs. They're important. The whole building of the temple. Was bringing to earth. As we're going to learn in Hebrews. What's already in heaven. There is another world. And it's more important than this one. So. We will. Bring that to an end. Which I didn't want to right now let me just say this as I close those five things are vital in our understanding how God is telling us about his son because ultimately when we see the son as he really is we see why we have the greatest reason for not walking away from him we see that he's altogether desirable, altogether lovely. So as we introduce uh, the rest of this chapter with these things, I would have you think simply that believers should persevere in faith because the son has become better than the angels. As he sits in glory, the angels cannot compare. That's important because the angels are important all the way through the Old Testament. We'll spend a little more time on that. But they were, they're important all the way through the scriptures, especially at certain points in the history of God's people on the way to the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so it was important for uh, the author to, to argue and to set forth the glory of Christ in that way. And thirdly, we should persevere in faith because the Son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the enthroned Messiah. We will spend 
some time on that. That passage, verses 5 through 14, divides up fairly evenly uh, into three parts. There's uh, verses 5 and 6, and then 7 through 12, and then 13 and 14. All together, there's a barrage. If I can say it this way without seeming irreverent, it's like a flood of Scripture from the Old Testament. Over and over, he points to the Old Testament to prove that Jesus Christ is God, the living God, but also that he is the God-man and that what he did uh, brought him to that more excellent name. And what was the more excellent name that he received? Son. That's what the context makes clear. The son of God. He's the son who became son. He is the eternal God that became flesh. And he became flesh to save his people from their sins. May God help us to love our Christ. May we never, we will be tempted, but may we never give in to the temptations to think there's something better than Christ. When we understand these things, we can answer the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it to lose friends, family, job, life for Christ? Yes. I pray you believe it. Holy Father, I ask thee in thy mercy to bless thy people. I pray that we would think about these things today. What comparisons, what contrasts. These things show us the beauty of Christ in a way that we would not see otherwise. Oh, blessed God, may we love thy son, for he so loves us. In him, we are safe. In him, we are pardoned. In him, we have everlasting life. And in him, we have an intercessor who saves his people to the uttermost. In Jesus' name, I thank thee. Amen. Well, we're going to have the Lord's Supper. For those of you that are visiting with us, you are welcome to have the supper with us. If not, we do pray that uh, the Lord will bless you and the rest of your Lord's Day. We'll take a short break and then we will come back to the table.